This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Tourism Authority faces an uncertain future without money it asked for in the state budget. Lawmakers go home today as the session concludes. A bill to create a new visitor management office in the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism to replace HDA failed to pass. But the message, though, seems uh, to focus on less marketing, more management. Today we hear from a visiting Fulbright scholar from Europe who's been studying our efforts with the latest buzz phrase, regenerative tourism. I first met Jeremy Lamarier in Paris five years ago when European cities first began pushing back against over-tourism. That week, six cruise ships pulled into port, and with the Louvre closed for the day, many passengers went to another popular attraction, Monet's Garden in Giverny. The crowds made for a less-than-ideal experience for this visitor. Le Marier is an associate professor at the University of Reims in the Champagne region. He sat down with us in our studios yesterday afternoon. Despite Paris being so far away from Honolulu, the context and the cultural context is quite different. Uh, I believe these two destinations, among many others, share the same problems. And one of them is over-tourism. Interestingly, though, in 2019, Hawaii Tourism Authority came up with that idea, which is regenerative tourism, that is not quite, it's not well known in France yet. And the whole concept of my research project is to learn about what you do here in Hawaii, to learn about what we do here in Paris, and how can each country can inform one another. And so what were you able to find out in your time here? I think it's important to begin with a definition because many people, you know, have heard that words, which is, by the way, not that easy to pronounce, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Regenerative. And the thing is, there is not an agreement of the definition. Right. People are saying, what does this mean? What does this mean and how different it is from sustainable tourism, right? So I think one good way to start is to say, what is sustainable tourism? Sustainable tourism seeks to have a place and have communities to remain as they are. The idea is to sustain the status quo. So you don't want to have the place and the community feeling worse, but you don't want to improve them neither. You just want to keep them in the same state. Why regenerative tourism want to improve the life of local communities, want to improve the ecosystem, the environment. So it's a different approach that is, uh, I would say, border. Uh, instead of saying, oh, let's make sure things remain equal, we would say, let's make sure things improve over time. A broader definition of regenerative tourism is that it is a first, to me, first and foremost, a business practice. It is the way that has us as stakeholders in the tourism industry behave, act, and work. And for example, instead of understanding tourism as a sector of an industry, you would understand tourism as being part of a larger ecosystem, which is alive. You know, it has the component of nature, obviously, but also communities. And here in Hawaii, also native Hawaiians, right? And so all of these ecosystems are interconnected. They are not separated from one another, and they change constantly. And that's, uh, I believe, one of the interesting point of view is that you must understand your business practice as being related to many other sectors, including living ones, and also that Everything is interconnected and has an impact on one another. You know, we had a guest on the show talking about regenerative agriculture. Yes. And it was about healing the land because, you know, some crops suck out the life of the soil. And then you need another crop to rotate in there to bring back the nutrients and, and, and heal itself. That's the same kind of concept then with and exactly. regenerative tourism. Regenerative agriculture was one of the many uh, sectors and dynamic that inspired regenerative tourism. And uh, you mentioned you, that rightly, which is how can you re replenish the ground, the soil? How can we have an agriculture that won't you know, diminish the capacity of the land, right? So we applied that concept now to tourism and, frankly speaking, the, the economy, generally speaking. I believe that every sector of the economy is concerned and should apply this concept. 
But, you know, here, let's just focus on tourism because there's so much already. HTA did, you know, roll out those destination area management programs under various stages of development. Yes, yeah. But I think the pandemic did highlight the fact that, you know, we all needed a break. And yeah. it was a forced break, but boy, did we learn a few things. Yeah. And I have to say, many things came out of what your stakeholders learned. And I was surprised that many people were aware of the problems here. And most of this awareness came from the resident, you know, and I'm glad you have this indicator, which is the resident sentiment survey. Uh, every quarter, we learn from residents about what they feel regarding tourism, how it may be overcome its negative impact by bringing more benefit. And when you look at that curve over the past 15 years, the residents are less and less happy about tourism. So I think that's a good indicator and something that is good to learn is how people feel. Well, the thing that we learn is that you can still manage to generate growth and have an economy, but with less people, for example. So carrying capacity is another indicator, which some believe it's relevant, others believe it is not, but I think it's interesting to look at it. For example, as you know, in 2022, I believe uh, Hawaii received about 9.4 million visitors, which was less than before the pandemic. But when you look at the revenue generated, uh, by the tourism economy, this revenue is higher by something around 1.2, 1.5 million more than 2019. So it means that, you know, for example, you can still manage to have an economy and bring wealth to the islands with less people. So that's something to me that is interesting to look at. And, you know, I know that there are carrying capacity studies being done at Hanama Bay, as yep. an example. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that was the first attraction that was manageable, right? You could limit the number of people that went yes. in there. I'll give the, the bay a break for a couple of days uh -huh. so nobody went down there. The city was at least trying to do these things early on. I think Hanama Bay is an interesting case study location. Uh, because, indeed, you could limit the number of people who can come to the bay, which is not in the case. You cannot limit the number of people who go to Hawaii, right? So now, before the pandemic, numbers said that there were between 3,000 up to 6,000 people coming to the bay every single day. That's a lot of people in such a small environment, right? And ever since the structure, the organization that manages the bay, ended up having a fee, uh, only for visitors though, which is $25. Resident can get in for free between 7 and 9 in the morning and stay there as long as they want. And you can use that money to manage the place, you know, to make sure the reef replenishes, that you have all the wildlife uh, being also well. Although it seems to be, you know, a perfect case, but I would like to add a point and be a bit critical regarding that, because that's also the approach of regenerative tourism. It's that you always want to critique, but uh, being constructive, of course, right? If you can take the example of the tourists or the visitors, right? What they discover is that when you go on the online system, everything is booked already. But every morning at seven in the morning, the system's open for the next two days so you can book your slot. By seven or one, when they got into the system, most of the ticket were gone already. And by the time they filled out their information, well, everything was gone. Meaning by seven or three, the whole reservation system was saturated. And I don't believe that uh, human did that, right? I have no idea, but you can see how there's a system that seems to work well for, for example, the visitors. But when you implement it, there are things that doesn't work right. Right. Uh, so do we uh, determine what's happening there? Yeah. So eventually, what did these visitors did? So they woke up the next day at you know six in the morning, drove to Hanumabe, and at seven they say we're gonna try. You know, at seven right. they say, oh, you did well because you can just walk in, but in, for that to happen, you will have to wait ten forty. So here they are at seven, and they say, come back in three, and f three hours and 40 minutes, and then you can get in. Wow. Which is you know, s not such a great experience as a visitor. So based on that, I, I did not figure out what happened, but you know, uh, I, I'm working on it, and I have some you know, suspicions. But what I can tell you is that I believe that for the Bay, 
what happened is still good because what is important is to limit the number of people who come here to make sure that nature is doing well and replenishes, renews, so on and so forth. So for the place itself, that story has no impact, right? But for the image of Hawaii as being a major tourist destination, who is hospitable, mm-hmm. uh, well, that's damaging Hawaii image uh, in a quite drastic way. Because it doesn't quite work yeah. so well. Yes. So, and this is okay if Hawaii is okay with having less money coming from the tourism, tourism industry, right? Mm-hmm. But if Hawaii is still intent to have tourists coming back over and over again, when that's where you know regenerative tourism despite all the good that it can do, especially for the local communities, the environment, the, the native Hawaiian cultures, if all that good happened eventually at the expense of revenue, then it will you know, eventually impact everybody, including those who are against uh, the visitor industry. We will continue our conversation with Fulbright scholar Jeremy Lamarier, who is visiting from France to study Hawaii's effort at managing tourism. We'll be right back after a break. In Tennessee, the legislature has a Republican supermajority. They control the clock, they control the calendar set year, they control the amendments, they control the debates, they can cut off microphones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They've also expelled two lawmakers. Our state legislature is laser focused on revenge. What Tennessee tells us about democracy in America's states. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following The Daily. A couple of years ago, there was a ton of cash out there for electric vehicle startups. Now, though, all the biggies, GM, Nissan, Ford, they're all in the EV game. And they have a second advantage, which is that they can use the profits from those already being manufactured automobiles to pay for electric cars. I'm Kai Rizdal. EV startups are hitting some bumps next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. We've been talking to Jeremy Lamarier, a Fulbright Scholar and Associate Professor from the University of Reims in France. He's been researching the issue of regenerative tourism and how Hawaii has been trying to manage the problem of too many tourists. It's something that major cities across the globe are wrestling with, including Paris. Le Marier returns to his home next week. Let's pick up our conversation about what his research turned up. Other high points were his implementation. This was a very interesting things to learn is that when you read whatever program has been designed, right? For example, the Destination Marketing Action Plan by AHTA. Uh, when you read the mission statement or the vision of the major organization who manage tourism here, their new approach is very, I mean, brings hope, right? You can see that they, they really thought this through and I really believe they are doing a good job, most of them. But then when you talk to people who actually deal with the visitors daily, there's a huge gap. I'll give you one example. Uh, you know, I, uh, I surf, so I was curious to learn about uh, one of the most famous uh, visitors' attraction, which is one of the oldest attractions, by the way, which is Surf Lesson and our trigger canoe ride. So I go down to Waikiki and I get to talk to some of the beach boys there and including uh, some of the owners of the beach concessions, right? And they don't know what is regenerative tourism. Nobody ever came to them, you know, to tell them what it is. And so that plan by HTA, for example, was created in 2019 and we are now in 2023, four years later, and it is not still, I believe, properly implemented in Waikiki, which is a hotspot, right? So there's some gaps. Yeah, and that's to me, again, 
it's a challenge that needs to be addressed. There's a big gap, and you know that's that's what the Beach Boys says, or anybody working on the beach that I talk to, they said, everybody know where we are, and everybody you know says in these plans that Waikiki is a priority, but none of these people comes on the beach and talk to us. Right. right? What does that really mean? For yeah. The numbers. Exactly. You know, and, the rentals. And, yeah. and, it, uh, and what does it mean for you as someone who works on the beach to, you know, maybe change your business practices as well? Because again, that's what is regenerative tourism is about how you change the way you work. These maps are hopeful, but they're not perfect. And mm-hmm. what else do we need to work on? You know, related to the lack of communication between all stakeholders is also the ability to take risk. And by that, I mean that the usual traditional business approach is to learn from the consumer. You know, that's the marketing survey. You want to learn what the consumer wants and you give what the consumer wants, right? And that's what is a a qualitative or a product that is of a good quality is a product that match what the consumer is looking for. That is called a demand approach, right? A demand-driven approach. Regenerative tourism is more on the supply side, meaning that in concept, we believe that it is better that the local communities and the local businesses tell the visitor what they want, right? Or what they should do and what they should not do. Like, for example, you should not come to Hanuma Bay because, you know, if you, if you come, you you will actually destroy the place if you come in great numbers. So basically, it's the location, the tourist destination saying, you are not telling me what you want anymore. We are telling you what you do and what, what you, you can not do. do right? Right. That, I can see many businesses not ready to take that risk. Many believe that in doing so, they will lose some of their revenues, especially, for example, the hotel industry. I worked with uh, you know, a few hotels, and it was still interesting to learn from their manager that that doesn't make sense to them. To come up with things that could, for example, uh, bring forward Hawaiian culture. Uh, a simple example, you know, in the hotel, instead of having plants from the mainland, how about you, know, you have plants that are indigenous to this land and have this displayed in the hotel and all, and many managers are not ready to do that yet. Some mm-hmm. do, others do not, because they believe that the plant is not as good looking, but that's a very subjective you know, way of right. looking at it. And you know, when I talk also to communities, especially Hawaiian communities, they said, well, if you don't show to the visitors what we have to offer, how can these people know what they want, right? So the whole new approach, I believe that uh, Hawaii still need to work on, is to establish that idea that it is important that you know what you want to promote and explain to the visitors that's the way Hawaii is and Hawaii is not going to be the way the visitors want. This may be what you want, but here's what it's here's what's available. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, here's what it's all about. If we keep going in that direction, eventually, you know, the industry will collapse. Yeah. Uh, due to you know pollutions, overcrowding. Right. You so hurt yourself so for the long the yeah. long term. Um, a- any just closing thoughts? Just you know, I mean, you're preparing to go back uh, to France now, and uh, you know, you've seen how we're trying to manage and Paris and France are trying to make changes too. Well, what I can tell you is uh, it's an ongoing effort, meaning that it's not because I go back that everything is over. I mean, when it comes to my research, I'm still going to work on it for probably many, many years over Mm -hmm. the next 10 or 20 years of my career. And the thing is, it requires constant and ongoing monitoring, ongoing studying and uh, surveying because again, this living ecosystem changes all the time. And it reacts really quickly, as you, like you said, you know, as soon as everybody was in a lockdown, you could see all the nature's coming back literally a few days after everybody was at home. Mm-hmm. So you can see that all the ecosystem around us reacts very quickly. Yeah, cause and effect. And, and it's not long-term you know, things where, oh, nature comes back in 10 years from now. Right. No, the next week you can already see some improvement. So you know, that's a concluding thought is that the regenerative approach always understand that things move things are never identical. Every day is different from the day before, even though things 
you know, some things remain the same, but every day is a new day to broaden your mind, change your approach, and adapt it based on the well-being of the ecosystem you are working on. Okay, work in progress. Yes, exactly. Working all the time. <laughs> all right. Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank I you very much. appreciate you coming down and doing this. And that was Jeremy Lamarier, a Fulbright scholar from France, who's here researching the problems of over-tourism and how to better manage it. It is now time for our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us this this morning. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Thursday. Hey, so we're going to be talking about the Alawai Canal today. That's right. So I have a, a story up on Civil Beat today. It's basically focusing on the latest with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' uh, pursuit of a flood control project for the Alawai watershed. Uh, one of the most populous and dense, if not the most populous and dense uh, areas of Oahu, 200,000 people, 19-square-mile area, uh, Malcolm and Mackay from the, the upper reaches of that watershed, and the, the valleys, uh, Manoa, Palolo, um, Makiki, all the way down to the uh, economically critical spot of Waikiki. So for years, the Army Corps has been uh, developing flood control plans for this area. And as some listeners might recall in recent years, uh, there was a lot of consternation when that project was was being unveiled more fully by the Army Corps. And it had involved a series of retention basins, detention basins, I should say, all scattered around the watershed and flood walls and the like. That project actually basically was scrapped uh, several years ago. But now the Army Corps is looking at it again. And uh, the reason why I'm looking, uh, I was writing about it today, it's what I found particularly interesting is that residents have been calling for some element of ecosystem restoration to contribute to this project. And by that, they what that generally comes to mean is, is you know, all the albizia trees, those invasive albizia trees that cause so much flooding and clogging when the branches fall down to remove those as best we can and replace with the, the natural trees that are that function more properly in the watershed, um, restoring stream beds, um, removing all sorts of invasives, things like that to better manage the watershed and to use that specifically for flood control. Yeah, now I mean, the Army Corps... Yeah, oh, the, yeah sorry, the, go ahead. No, but the, the community, it sounded like they wanted something more, you know, holistic, Right. Exactly. Yeah, they wanted they wanted a more holistic approach, not just channeling, uh, you know, streams and the like, but really something that that yeah, more holistically manages the the flood threat. So the, basically, the the reason I'm writing about this today is that the the core is getting another bite at the apple, and they don't have a lot of the same constraints that they had on the previous uh, project, specifically to to have to build for a what's called a 100-year flood, which is a really severe, uh, you know, considered a, a rare, uh, massive flood. They, they don't have to do that anymore. But nonetheless, they have already ruled out any sort of uh, benefit in terms of flood control for uh, a, a nature-based approach, an ecosystem restoration approach. And so that's already got, that's already starting to cause more consternation in, in the community. Yeah, and uh, I know that they they did eliminate some basins in the proposal this time around, uh, but they kept the wall, right, the six foot high wall around the Alawai. Yeah, that's the other kind of big uh, consternation component of this is is that they've they're saying, look, you're not going to get any real benefit in the middle of the of a serious storm. Uh, strictly from removing trees and the like. But furthermore, we were also uh, staying put with uh, walls that would probably have to be about six feet high that would that would line the perimeter of the Alawai Canal, also the, the Manoa Palolo Canal, which, which feeds into that area. Um, and you are looking at a detention basin. They, they've removed um, a lot of the de- 
the detention basins that were causing so much controversy um, up in, in Manoa and Palolo and the like. But they would use uh, the Alawai Golf Course in some fashion to as a, as a giant detention basin uh, down at the, the bottom of the watershed. And then uh, area lawmakers are getting involved in this too, right? That's right. So you, you had a, uh, a group of the state lawmakers that all represent the Alawai Watershed that have uh, submitted a a written letter um, on behalf of their constituents uh, asking that the uh, that the Army Corps provide more details on the methodology behind uh, this, what, you know, this repeated assertion that you wouldn't get any sort of, of benefit. They want to see the, the numbers, you know, show show me the numbers behind uh, uh your your conclusion here because they, we we've heard this the army corps is stating this but you know given that the interest in ecosystem restoration the community wants to know more about you know what those findings are right and we should probably let our listeners know that uh, uh, the, the army corps is soliciting comments uh, and that they will have another public meeting I think it's on the fifteenth right. I, I believe that's correct. And the comments, it's you can go to the city website, which is a partner. It's like honolulu.gov slash alawai, I believe, is the, the website. All right. Well, thanks so much. Good information there. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to reporter Marcel Henri for today's Reality Check. You can read the full story on the situation with the Alawai Canal by visiting civilbeat.org. May the Force be with you. Today happens to be Star Wars Day, and so it's fitting that we honor the observation of an actual Death Star. Astronomers have caught this star in the act of swallowing a planet whole. This is not a star merger, but an older star aging and expanding through another planet. This discovery involved multiple telescopes, including Keck and those on the mainland, and in space. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke to John O'Meara, chief, uh, chief scientist of the Keck Observatory, this morning to learn more about this powerful star and its appetite for other planets. This is the fate of Earth some five billion years from now. O'Meara assures us those there's no need to worry as it is far, far away. This is a really cool discovery. So, you know, we, we like to think of the sun as, as always being there. It's, it's, it's always been there throughout recorded history. It's, it's always been a part of our lives. But it turns out that just like human beings and, and, and just about everything else in the universe, stars can, can, can get old and, and eventually uh, run out of fuel and die. When stars like our sun do this, they, they start to puff up and get much, much larger than they were through most of their lives. And in that process, if there are any planets nearby the star, those planets are going to have a bad day because they'll actually be engulfed by the atmosphere of the star. And if we think about our sun, the surface of the sun is many thousands of degrees. And, and even if that cools down a little bit, you still don't want to be inside of a star. And that's exactly what they caught in the act. They caught a planet being engulfed by its parent star. And it's one of the first times that they've ever seen this actually happen. We know that stars grow old and go through this process, and we know that there are planets orbiting stars beyond our solar system, but we've never seen these two things happen at the same time, where the, the star gets big enough as it's, as it's slowly dying to engulf a planet that's orbiting around it. So it's, it's one of those things that we've known should be happening a lot throughout the universe, but we've never caught it in the act, and they caught it in the act. Wow, there's all kinds of terrible metaphors I can think that can go <laughs> yes. along with this idea. Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, it's, it's Star Wars Day, so we might as well call this the Death Star. I'm thinking like anywhere from cannibalism to empire, so yeah, it seems pretty <laughs> terrible. But why is this act important when it will not happen potentially to us within our solar system for how many millions of years? Yeah, billions. we shouldn't be concerned about this happening to us for a few billion years. But 
we should care about this because it's it's another verification that we understand that the universe is is not a a, a static, never changing thing. That that the universe is is dynamic. That our sun is dynamic. That all stars are dynamic. And so, being able to to comprehend how stars work is a complex interplay of of nuclear and particle physics, of gravity, of how gas works at high temperature. But all of those things require us to be able to write them down and understand them. And the fact that we're seeing this out in the universe means that we're getting the physics about right. And whenever we can get the physics about right for things like stars, we can start to understand how gases at high temperature might work. And this may be useful someday because it may be the, the way that we figure out how to get fusion energy, which is clean and cheap and, and totally abundant because the, the, the same gases that power stars are the gases that are just the dominant ones out there in the universe. It has many uses in, in our daily lives, but primarily that we understand how nature works and we were able to predict that this should be happening and, and the predictions came true. So it's a good sign for us to be able to understand how things work and that's important in every aspect of our daily lives as we try to make our lives better. Yeah, I was thinking a bit about the overview effect mm -hmm. um, in terms of a shift. I don't know if you can explain the overview effect to people. That might sure. be helpful. Yes. Yeah, so the, the overview effect is, is, is a very interesting phenomenon that happens to almost every astronaut who's ever been in low Earth orbit, and certainly for, for those astronauts who, who went to the moon and came back. And it's, it's this thing that happens to people when they can see the Earth as an entire object from above. They can see the Earth as this, this thing that they're no longer on, and they can see how thin its atmosphere is, and they can see its fragility. They can see the Earth as something which is fragile and, and, and in need of protection. And this happens to almost everybody who's ever viewed the Earth from, from that great distance. And it's that same fragility that I think is, is a part of this story here. Now, the planet that was being engulfed by its, by its star was much, much closer to its star than we are to our sun. But it does show off that planets are fragile, that stars are fragile, that, that absent, you know, care and protection that that things can happen to entire planets now we don't anticipate this happening to to the earth for about four billion years so we don't need to worry about it but it does showcase that planets as a whole are fragile and that we should be doing all that we can do to 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 protect them it's going to be impossible for us to protect the earth from this event with the sun in four billion years but it does highlight that 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 planets and, and the Earth inclusive of them are fragile. And I think that's the way that this kind of overlaps with the overview effect, because, um, you know, the, the astronauts and people look down just see the fragility of the Earth and come back with a, a deeper appreciation that we have to protect it as a planet, not just our individual homes on top of it. To me, this is what is provocative and interesting when there are reports about the stars, about our fates in that sense. How do we then learn to interact and think about who we are on this planet? So I appreciate your explanation here. Why would we not have seen this kind of action before? The primary reason why we haven't seen it before is that the process of stars getting old and, and dying is a very, very slow one, right? Our sun is about four and a half billion years old, and it's not going to go through this process again for another four-ish billion years, four or five billion years. And so these processes are actually quite slow, and to be able to see it in the way that the astronomers did needs to have a star that's relatively close by, at least on the scale of the universe. This was a star within our galaxy. It was many thousands of light years away, but it was within our galaxy. And so at some level, it depended upon luck. It depended upon being able to, to see a system at that unique time when the atmosphere crossed across the planet and, and added a lot more heat into the system and they saw the heat through infrared light and then followed it up and determined that it was because this planet was being engulfed. So this should be happening all the time in the universe, but we got lucky because it happened for a star close enough for us to, to measure it and at that 
rare instant in that process when the light got a bit brighter and we could follow it up. So there, there were a lot of facilities across the Earth and a, and a, a telescope in space that caught this at various stages, and it required that whole ecosystem of astronomy to be able to be brought to bear in this one instant for a thing which is slow on the time scale of the universe, but rapid enough that if we hadn't caught it, the brightening of the, the planet being engulfed with the telescopes at the right time, we would have missed it entirely. How was the Keck Observatory involved in this particular observation? So the, the observation started by a different set of telescopes monitoring the star, and, and the astronomers who were, who were looking at this were actually thinking, oh, hey, that star's getting brighter, maybe it's a nova, and a nova is, is, a, is a part of a star's evolution where it gets rapidly very much brighter, but then kind of goes back, and, and a supernova is when the star explodes entirely. So they thought it was a nova, but then they realized that it was brightening in infrared light in a way that, that they didn't anticipate, and so they decided to start to follow it up with other telescopes, including a telescope in space. And then they started to, to see, wow, this, this isn't a nova, and it's acting like maybe what would happen if a star was engulfing a planet. And that's when Keck got involved. The, the Keck telescope has a spectrograph, which measures the, the atomic content of gas and materials in stars in an interstellar and intergalactic space. And so they aimed it at this, this star plus planet system and saw some slam dunk signatures that, that it was really this process of a star engulfing a planet. And without Keck being able to do that process, we would have still hypothesized that it could be the answer, but this provided the, the clinching evidence that it was the answer. What is it that prompted you to become an astronomer? Did you have these kinds of questions about our fragility, or was it the pure exploration of the what, the science of it? Well, so for, for, for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a, a medical doctor and following in the footsteps of, of my father and, and, and my mother, who were both in the medical profession. But uh, I went to, to college and, and, and heard about some weird stuff in physics, like quantum mechanics and all these things, and got really interested in, in, in physics. And then when I went to graduate school, I took up an opportunity to go to an observatory. And the very first telescope I ever used was the, the, one of the Keck telescopes, the largest and most powerful in the world. The very first observation we made was of, of an object that was, you know, the light left that object 11 billion years in the past, so before wow. the solar system, our solar system had even formed. And it was almost an overnight revelation because uh, to be able to use a piece of instrumentation that powerful to look at the universe that far pa in, in, its, in its past and to try to figure out what the universe was made out of really just lit a fire in me and, and, and overnight I became an astronomer and have been doing that for 25 years now. So it's very much a what, but n now that I live in, in Hawaii and I see the fragility of the islands here as part of a larger ecosystem on the earth, I really get a deeper appreciation, I think, to that second point that you're talking about, that, that astronomy helps me connect to the world and, and to the universe and to, to want to advocate for taking care of the place that we live, because had it not provided us with life and abundance, we, we wouldn't be able to ask these questions. And so it's, it's worth defending at, at, at all levels. I really appreciate you speaking with me this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. I really enjoy it, and may the fourth be with you. <laughs> yes. May the fourth be with you, too. Aloha. Aloha. And there you go. Happy Star Wars Day. May the fourth and the force be with you. That was John O'Meara, chief scientist of the Keck Observatory. He was talking with HBR's Stephanie Hahn this morning about how events like these can bring us together and what we might think when we observe a hungry star that has the power to consume another planet. Today on The Daily, Narcan, the life-saving treatment that reverses an overdose, will soon be available over-the-counter. What that might mean for America's enduring opioid epidemic and the tens of thousands of lives it takes each year. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily. 
from the New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. If you're looking for more ways to support Hawaii Public Radio, consider applying for our Community Advisory Board. The board is made up of volunteers from across the islands. They advise HPR on programming and outreach and help shape the future of HPR. Neighbor Island listeners are especially encouraged to apply, and you can nominate yourself or someone else. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin May 22nd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Hawaii Public Radio was there six months ago when an oil portrait of Hawaii's last reigning monarch left Iolani Palace to make a trip across the Pacific and the continent to our nation's capital. And we were fortunate enough to be there when the gold leaf treasure was welcomed as part of a new exhibit that just opened this past weekend. A group from Hawaii made the trip to the National Portrait Gallery. It included members of the Hawaiian Benevolent Societies, the Royal Order, the Kaumanu Society, uh, the uh, Sons and Daughters of Hawaiian Warriors, as well as staff from Iolani Palace and the Hawaii State Archives. They were there to hear the telling of the political stories behind the portraits. For those in that room that day, it was a mix of pride and pain. In a private gathering before the official public opening of the exhibit entitled 1898, uh, Imperial Visions and Revisions, the Hawaii contingent chanted the Queen's genealogy and sang Hawaii Ponoi, and throughout, tears flowed as the music haunted the halls of the portrait gallery. How was the Queen's story presented? Here's co-curator Kate, um, Kate Clark-Lemay leading a pre-opening tour for national media. Queen Lilia Kalani inherited a throne that was troubled. In 1893, her reign was overthrown through a coup d'etat. And this was a coup that was organized by Anglo businessmen, if you will follow me, um, who were descendants of the first missionaries from New England. And this is a portrait of Harriet Bradford Tiffany Stewart, who came over to Hawaii from New England in 1823. She was on the second boat of missionaries. Some of their descendants included Lauren Thurston, who was the mastermind behind the overthrow. And he organized with other Anglos uh, the so-called Committee of Safety, and then overthrew the Hawaiian government. And this was not without a lot of resistance, obviously, from Native Hawaiians. This beautiful quilt, you can see the flag of Hawaii that surrounds the coat of arms of the Hawaiian kingdom. And so people would gather, loyalists would gather, and they would have this as a symbol in their home to symbolize their own allegiance to their queen. They also could see that in 1898, the annexation was coming. They, the people of Hawaii were uh, very aware that this is a momentum that was building. And so in 1897, they organized the Ku'e petitions, which consisted of 27,000 signatures of men and women, Native Hawaiians, who did not want to uh, become annexed to the United States which was through joint resolution that it means a total vote count of both House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. So that is not a ratified treaty. 
And people to this day are participating in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement because they believe that that is not a legal annexation. And we know the Queen's request to be reinstated fell on deaf ears and Hawaii would be annexed and the monarchy would come to an end. The telling of the Queen's story in this federal museum was deeply felt. Here's Arthur Ayu of the Royal Order of Kamehameha. From the moment that we went in that first morning to conduct our protocol and our blessing, it was just overwhelming and emotional. And you know, you could just feel the mana of the queen in the room. And you know, that portrait is so powerful and it's hopeful that the story that we have to share will be shared amongst others and realizing that you know we're not the only ones that have the same story you know the others from Puerto Rico from Cuba from the Philippines uh, from Guam you know we all share the same story you know? and then hopefully the truth of that will come to light you know I keep thinking that I just saw this quote in order to right a wrong, we must shed the light of truth. So it's my hope that this exhibit will shed light of truth. We also just saw the Kuei petitions and, and it, it was very impressive for those that had family members who signed that thing. Um, I don't know, just your thoughts on being able to see the original documents. Again, another powerful moment um, this weekend. So I, I actually requested for one of the pages uh, of my great-grandmother, Josephine Ayu. Uh, just so happened when the page came out, um, Ikaika Bantolina came next to me and he pointed down to a name. He goes, oh, that's my tutu. And literally just above Ikaika's tutu was my tutu. Uh, so, and they were both named Josephine. So it was, it, it was, an aha moment for both of us, but just the fact that these pages are here and we actually saw you know, um, the signatures. So that was another wow moment for me personally, uh, that I actually have Coco on that paper. And that was Arthur Ayu of the Royal Order of Kamehameha, who was there in Washington, D.C. this weekend for the opening of the 1898 exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery. Other members shared their pride in seeing the handwriting on the fragile papers, including Ikaika uh, Bantolina. So who is it in your family that has signed this? Josephine Wahine Kapu. She's on my maternal side. Um, she then married a Mali'i Kapu. The Wahine couples are from Kohala and Kona area, as well as Hana and um, Kahakuloa. And finding these names out, like, there's a lot of Wahine couples, but this particular one, she's in my genealogy, so she's my kupuna. And how old was she when she signed? 21, yeah. And another member's eyes scanned the documents, looking for his relative's signature. Just one entry, a last name, and the age when the document was signed. Ayo. This person was 65 years old who wrote this, but I'm not sure if it's Kane Wahine. But it's your relative, your family. Yeah, it's my it's my last name, this. <laughs> and then your first name is? Russell. You're Russell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No first name on you? No. Well, in the olden days, they only had one name, and most of them, you see, only get one name. Majority is one. This, this is 1897. And I'm like, no, what is the significance of this name? Because this, this last name is related to our last name. And so all your family knew is that they signed this petition? Well, I found out when I went through the book. You know, the Kuwait petition, I went through the whole book, look all the people that I know and let them know, you guys' family name, right? Is in the book. And I marked all the pages. But my page, my page number is different from this page number. I don't know why. Because when Adam asked me, hey, send me your page again, I did. I have a different, oops, I have a different page number on top. And there you go, trying to make sense of Hawaii's history. We share a moment in time. And so we leave you as a group, left the exhibit with one last tribute, the Queen song, O Makalapua, talks about making a flower lay for Hawaii's queen.
And we hope you tune in tomorrow as we talk with historian Tom Kaufman about the politics of the year 1898. He wrote a review of the exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery. Give us some feedback. Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard earlier? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 